the assumption was that the smarter people had a higher chance of success. And you know, I didn't go to the best university. Oh, yeah, it's a good university, but it was uh, the university in my town. So yeah, I think that probably was a bit of a, a self-limiting belief. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. I really love people with quirky career stories, and today's guest definitely has a good one. A young Canadian man with a sense of adventure arrives in Osaka, Japan with a red backpack and nowhere to stay. He ends up sleeping on a park bench. More than three decades later, and he's still in Japan by way of Singapore and India, but he's a long way from the park bench. He is Paul Dupuy, the Japan chairman and CEO of Randstad, the major recruitment company. He's also the author of The E5 Movement, Leadership Through the Rule of Five, which you'll hear us talk about quite a bit. As you'll hear in our conversation, Paul and I first met a few years ago when he came on the Tiger Hall podcast, and I've always remembered him and his story. I know he's someone who thinks about things deeply, so I wanted to get his take on self-doubt and limiting beliefs. Paul, I want to start by asking you about this pivotal moment in your life when at the age of 22, you boarded a flight to Japan and after the flight, you didn't have anywhere to stay and you slept on a park bench. Now, I'm really fascinated about this moment and the more I think about it, the more <laughs> the more questions I have. So I've got a list of questions. I know you value curiosity, so I hope all these questions are okay. Can you remember what you were thinking when you were lying on that park bench? Well, that's kind of the quintessential question, isn't it? What was I thinking? Well, we've all been there, Pippa. <laughs> what was running we, through your head? We've all been young, hey? I think we're still young at heart, although we're, we're both young still. But, you know, when you're young and a little bit fearless, it's a wonderful time, isn't it? Because I didn't plan ahead. I didn't plan the details. I just knew that I wanted to go. And that was enough. It got me on the plane. And I didn't think beyond, you know, getting to Osaka, Japan. I didn't think about where to stay. I didn't have a job, very little money in my pocket. So that's really where, I guess, again, the adventure began. When I was in Osaka and I first arrived and I came out of that subway station late at night after about a 40-hour trip from my hometown in Canada to Osaka, that's when I realized I had, uh, I had really taken a big leap out of my comfort zone. And so, yeah, you know, as you do, you look for a place to stay. And I did that and I walked around and I, in 1990 in Osaka, Japan. Nobody spoke English. It was sort of a scene right out of the movies, you know. And, and so I found a park bench and I sat down with my big red backpack on and uh, I settled in, laid down, fell asleep with my backpack as my pillow. And that was night one in Japan. Were you feeling at all vulnerable? 
Like, were you doubting the decisions you'd made that had led you there? You know, it's you know that mix of emotions when you're when you're excited but nervous and apprehensive and you know kind of a mix of everything. It's like this magic stuff. It's like a magic potion in a way. So yeah, of course, but I never, I've never regretted, never thought of what have I done. If anything, that just motivated me more. It kind of reaffirmed the reason I got on the plane in the first place to, to go somewhere brand new. I was so excited about that moment, being in a faraway country, not speaking the language, not knowing anyone, and again, having just a little bit of money in my pocket. So yeah, I, I think the adrenaline was flowing. I, I was excited. Yeah. What time of year was it? And was it cold? No, in fact, it was hot. And I had never experienced, as a Canadian, ever experienced this kind of heat and humidity. And we're talking about Asia heat and humidity. Mm. And in Japan, a lot of people don't don't realize, but Japan gets extremely hot in the summer, and the humidity is off the charts. So again, something I'd never experienced before. Although it was September fifth when I arrived, and in the evening it was very humid. So that was uh, actually lesson number one. Uh, when I came to Japan is, you know, how to handle the humidity. And of course, the job search started shortly after. I needed to kind of find a, a way to make a living. And I had one suit I brought with me. I brought my my the best suit I could find, a green double-breasted suit, 1980s oh, style, nice. big shoulder pads, you know. And uh, Sexy. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> and, and so I remember it being so hot and I was wearing the suit. And of course, on top of that, nervous and so on, trying to navigate my way around town. It was a, yeah, it was a real welcome to, to Asia and to Japan. What did you do after you woke up? <laughs> that's a, that's, a, wow, that's a really philosophical question. I don't know if I've woken up yet. <laughs> from this dream. It's kind of like the matrix, isn't it? Okay. That's a deeper answer than I was expecting yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to think I'm still riding the roller coaster of the adventure, but well, I woke up the next morning and, and uh, decided I needed to find a place to stay. So I wandered around the neighborhood. And again, at that time, you know, nobody spoke English. I, had, I hadn't seen another non-Japanese person um, the entire time since I arrived. And, and of course, I was wandering around and I saw one place and it had some letters in English in it. And I'll never forget because it said Hotel Sun Plaza in English. Mm. But, you know, standing outside, I realized it wasn't a hotel. It looked more of like a, like a hostel. So I wandered into this place and there was a fella behind the counter, probably about five foot two tall and five foot two wide. I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but he was, you know, shaved head, just had a white undershirt on, wearing flip flops. And uh, we probably were just as surprised at seeing each other because I don't think he had ever seen a Canadian young guy walk into uh, his place, his establishment. So he spoke zero English. I spoke zero Japanese. He was a lot of gestures. And basically, I realized it was a place where I could just flop uh, for a while. So he took me up to the room. In Japan, they have tatami mats. If you know the straw tatami mats, if you go to mm, Japan. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how they measure rooms by size of tatami mat. And they're these rectangular mats. So he opened the door and it was three tatami mats. That was the room. So literally I could stand in the middle and touch all the walls in mm. the room. Uh, shared washroom, shared shower. Mm. And it was, as it turned out, and I found out later, this was indeed a flop house for construction workers, day workers. So these day workers would stay there and they would earn cash. Uh, it still goes on today, by the way, in Japan. So I was really deep in the kind of heart of, let's say, blue collar Japan, as I came to discover, is a very interesting part of Osaka. 
So interesting. Yeah, this guy wasn't expecting to find a 22-year-old Canadian who looked like he'd just slept on a park bench. Yeah, with a big smile too. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of gestures, a lot of gestures to get by. But it was wonderful, wonderful memories. And uh, yeah, when I think back on it now, uh, so lucky, I think, in a way that I landed there. And when I tell friends in Japan this story, they're always so surprised because this neighborhood in Osaka doesn't have the best reputation. It's kind of even considered by Japanese standards a, a slum. Mm. But that's where I had my beginning and I, I cherish the memory there. Well, I mean, I just, I love this story and I really admire the the fearlessness and the sense of adventure. And as you know, I did something not too dissimilar in my 20s, but for me, it was India. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd arranged somewhere to stay, Paul. Yeah, well, you you and I uh, have something in common on that regard, um, having also landed in India, but I was much <laughs> well better well taken care of, let's say, than when I landed in Osaka, but I, I know what you mean. Yes. But, but Pip, on that one, eh? all the leaders I talked to and I've observed and I wrote about in, in my book as well, the exceptional leaders that have been around are just people who go on and, and do great things and make a positive impact on the world. These are the people that purposely seek out an opportunity to step out of their comfort zone. There's that common denominator amongst the game changers that I've been around uh, during my journey. And you don't necessarily need to be a leader of people. It's about just taking that leap into the unknown and being motivated by it. And then, you know, once you get the bug... You want to do it again and again. Indeed. I haven't stopped moving around since. Okay. So moving on from the park bench, (laughs) you and I initially spoke about three years ago, and I've actually thought of you a few times since because we had discussed how your love of sports has informed your leadership style and taught you a lot about teamwork. And a few people I've spoken to since have have drawn the same parallel. And I, I always think back to you. Unsurprisingly, you have some stories about sport in your book. I was just wondering, do you have a favorite story? Well, yeah, I've played a lot of sports uh, growing up in Canada. Obviously, ice hockey. Uh, by the way, we call it hockey in Canada, but um, in this part of the world, it's important to distinguish. because There are a couple of kinds of hockey, as I discovered, especially in India. And then I, I played American football, baseball, and karate. That's really why I came to Japan was to do karate. There is one story about karate that um, sticks with me, and it's, it's quite inspiring. And again, I tell it in detail in the book, but I'll just give a brief synopsis. And I learned a really valuable lesson about where we should focus when we're trying to be better, when we're trying to better ourselves. So I was practicing in the dojo, in this deep Osaka dojo, and preparing for the Japan National Karate Tournament. It was 1995. And I was just doing a combination as you do. So, you know, uh, left punch, right punch, left kick, left punch, right punch, left kick. Just kept doing the same combination over and over again. And my teacher, or the sensei, as they call him, started coming towards me. And in Japan, there's an old adage about leadership and sensei, no news is good news. So if the sensei doesn't say anything to you, then you're doing it right. But if the sensei comes over to speak to you, then you know you're doing something wrong and you need to make a change. So he was inching towards me and I kept doing my combination eight times, nine times, ten times. And then he came over and he said, stop. And he asked me, he said, which leg is your stronger leg? And I said my right leg. And he looked at me and said, so why are you practicing your left leg? And then he walked away. Hmm. And I had this hallelujah moment. And it's a lesson that stays with me even today. And I give this message to my teams, uh, wherever I am. Let's focus on our strengths. We all have some sort of natural brilliance. Every single person on this planet has a natural brilliance, something we're just naturally good at, and we love to do it. Focus on that. Focus on being the best in the world at that particular thing, whatever it is. 
And again, it's not just about business. It can be, you know, anything, a hobby that you have, whatever it is you love to do and you're pretty good at it and it feels good, then focus on that and be the absolute best in the world. So I switched legs and I focused on my stronger leg, my right leg. Fast forward a couple of weeks, Japan Nationals. I got to the final match. And in the end, I scored my very first point with a right kick, the combination I had practiced. In the end, I lost the match, but I got a silver medal. And it was quite a moment because uh, no other non-Japanese karate guy had gotten that far. So it was quite a, a moment for me, but also for my teacher in the dojo. But it really came back to that important lesson. Focus on your strengths. Make your strengths stronger. Wow. Well, I love it. There was one story you tell in the book that I just love. And I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot here because there are so many stories. I don't know if you remember every single one of them, but... I really love this one because it demonstrates the power of belief. Mm. And it was about the Japanese women's soccer team after the earthquake and tsunami in 2011. Do you remember yeah, it? Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, uh, belief, the power of belief. One lesson I've learned leading across cultures and borders, of course, but also situations. I've been in the midst of storms, turnaround, complete turnaround situations, as well as, uh, let's say, driving aggressive growth in a very conservative culture. One of the things that I've kind of, if you had to break it down to what is the trigger to change the game, it's belief, creating a sense of belief that you can do it and will do it, and then enabling, becoming the leader who enables. And so the Japanese women's soccer team, it's quite a story. If you remember 2011, how can we forget the earthquake and the tsunami in East Japan? And so that was in, that was March, in fact, in 2011. And shortly after was to be the Women's World Cup of soccer. It was going to happen in Europe. And the Japanese women qualified for the World Cup. So that was quite a moment, but they weren't expected to win. They probably wouldn't make it past the first round. And so that was the assumption. And so the earthquake hit and the players were really in a kind of a dilemma. The general feeling on the team was that after Japan has just been devastated by this tragedy, you know, how could we go to Europe and play this game? We need to stay in Japan. And I think it's also quite a Japanese sense of honor as well. Mm. Uh, while everyone else is suffering, we need to be here with them. And so this started to get into the media. And quickly, the population of Japan rallied behind the women's soccer team to the point where it was unanimous. And even the prime minister said, you need to go. You need to go and represent Japan proudly. Go. And that sends out a message to Japan that we're going to move forward. So get on the plane and go over there and give it your best. Win or lose, just give it your best. So they went. And if you know your soccer history, you know what happened. This is in a way like the miracle on ice story where the American Olympic team uh, won the hockey um, gold medal against the Russians. And, you know, this was a team, again, of Japanese women who were all, by most standards, mediocre players, no superstars. But they rallied together and they came together and they agreed that they had a chance. And it went so deep in their heart that they believed they could win. And when you really break it down, it wasn't just the belief, it was the purpose that fueled the belief. Their purpose was to encourage Japan, which had been brought to its knees. And they thought if they could go over there and win, wouldn't it just do amazing things for the spirit of the Japanese people? Of course, they ended up winning the World Cup. And there's a wonderful uh, interview with Hope Solo from the U.S. team who said that when she stepped on the field to play the Japanese women, she looked in the eyes of the players and she knew even before the game started that they were in trouble, that the Americans were in big trouble. She said there was such a fire 
in the eyes of every single woman on the Japanese team. And she predicted it. They went on to win the World Cup. Unbelievable story of belief. It wasn't about ability. It was about belief. So I really absolutely believe in that. And I've seen it repeated again and again in India when I was part of a dramatic turnaround story. Again, the power of belief is immense. Such a beautiful story. I, I really love it. It's reminded me of, I don't know if this is a slightly sort of frivolous segue. Have you seen the show Ted Lasso? Oh, yeah. Oh, love it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Being an American football fan and, you know, yeah. Well, in fact, I'll tell you what I have believe all over our offices. It's all over the messaging that we give. You know, it really starts with believing. I'm so glad that they included that in that show. So it's getting into the eyes and ears and hearts of people. Regardless of what you're doing, again, whether you're in business or you know, the arts or, or hosting a podcast, just believing in your purpose and your mission is so powerful. Okay, Paul, you consider yourself a student of, of leadership, and this obviously very much comes across in your book. One thing I would love to ask you about is how can someone be sure that they're a good leader? I'm sure that one of the things you're going to say is like listening and feedback. I mean, the reason I asked, I was having coffee with a friend last week and her boss was on a panel discussion and I'd been watching this panel and the panel was about leadership and he was talking about culture and it was so inspiring. And I said to him, oh, I saw your boss and she rolled her eyes. <laughs> she does not think he is a great boss or a great leader. <laughs> and I mean, we all, we, all, we all sort of know these stories, right? We know it from our own lives that people may think that they're, they're brilliant and not everyone shares that, shares that opinion. What are your thoughts? Well, this is a hot topic right now for me, particularly because I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, this notion of self-awareness is really, in, in fact, I would say it's even a critical skill to be an effective leader. The gap between how you think you come across versus how you actually do, intent, versus actual impact, the leaders that understand that, that can close that gap, tend to be the more effective leaders. And we have tools, um, you know, the 360 degree assessments, of course, and, and there are all kinds of tools to do that. But how do you really know if you're an effective or an exceptional leader? Well, the obvious question would be to look in the mirror and confront the brutal facts, as Jim Collins says in Good to Great. And that's tough for a lot of leaders. Now, there are lots of metrics to measure. You can look at employee engagement, you can look at attrition, you can look at uh, the leaders around you who are shining, for example, the leaders that you raise up. And that's actually one question that I ask in every interview. If I'm interviewing someone senior to join my team particularly, mm. and maybe this is a question I could offer up to, uh, to the listeners, but it's a powerful one. So what I like to do is ask the leader, so tell me about some of the leaders who you have raised during your journey, who you have mentored, and what have they gone on to do? And what you see is, uh, well, a variety of reactions. The exceptional leaders are so excited by that question because they have a whole list of people to talk about that they're so proud of. And you can see it in the body language and they'll talk about, they'll talk about Pippa, who I worked with 10 years ago, who's gone on to this amazing role and she's incredible and so on. And they'll tell stories. And then I'll, of course, ask the follow-up question, are you still in touch with these people? And if the answer is yes, then you know that this leader has something special. He or she has raised up leaders, enable leaders to shine and go on to be the best versions of themselves. And this leader stays in touch, is engaged and cares. Mm. You get the other reaction where leaders can't think of others who they've raised up. They're struggling to think of, of people. They often refer to people on their team currently, but I'm really interested on those they've worked with on their journey. 
in the past and where they've gone on to. So that to me is a really good pulse check to identify whether someone has the qualities of an effective leader. Yeah. There's so many more, Pip, I mean, you know, and I learned these lessons in India. Does the leader listen more than he or she speaks? That's a simple barometer. The great leaders are the ones who listen first. That's a really good one. So obviously, I've been thinking a lot about self-doubt with this podcast. And one thing that's really important, as you say, to good leadership is self-awareness. And I'm realizing more and more that self-awareness is actually really important when you're thinking about self-doubt, because some self-doubt can actually be quite useful. It makes you question yourself, critique yourself in a way that's really valuable and, and productive, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, well, we hear this word was really popular for a while, this phrase, imposter syndrome. Mm. I mean, the simple way to put that is what you just said, self-doubt. Am I really, do I really belong here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you're sitting in the seat, you belong there. Go for it. You know, let's face it. Li life has led you, something has led you to this place in this space. So, so go for it. But, you know, I, I'm a big believer in um, choices, as I said earlier. We all have an ability to control the controllables. So, for example, we have voices, that self-talk that we all have. There's a little voice on this shoulder that says, you can do it. You got this. You're on it. You belong here. Then there's this other voice over here that says, oh, what if, what if that happens? Oh, no, you might, you know, it might not work. And all the doom and gloom scenarios, right? So when we wake up every day, we have a choice. We're going to listen to this voice or this voice. When you make a conscious decision to brush this voice off and only listen to this one, that's when uh, I think it opens up amazing opportunities for all of us. Now, we got to sometimes confront the brutal facts, as I said earlier, look in the mirror. It's okay to, you know, to identify your weaknesses and where you're struggling and so on. But I absolutely believe that, you know, we should listen to the, the positive voice and also surround ourselves with people who encourage us and support us, but are also are not afraid to give us honest feedback. Okay, Paul, I had asked you to think of some limiting beliefs or doubts you've experienced along the way, and you've kindly sent me three that we can discuss. Yeah. So the first one is in regard to your book. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, sure, sure. And you only asked me for three. I could have given you 30, but... Um, Next time. Limiting beliefs along the way. So <laughs> the first one. Okay. So this is uh, something that I stumbled upon. I'll call it the default reaction or the reflex so I was visiting Japan uh, on a holiday from India at Christmas, and I met with a friend who's quite a famous author. His name's Ken Honda here in Japan, best-selling author. He's an amazing guy. And we were having dinner, and I was talking about the whole India journey and the experience and you know, the challenges, but also the progress and so on. And he stopped me in mid-sentence, and he said, Paul, you have to write a book. And my first reaction was, default, Ken, I'm not an author. Well, fast forward a year later, I wrote the book, but you know, it wasn't obviously that easy. It was more about, first of all, getting over that default reaction that I'm not an author. Well, are we all card carrying certified anything? I mean, at the end of the day, you can be anything you want to be, right? And so I realized that I needed to follow my own advice and listen to the voice on my shoulder. So he said I should write a book. I went back to India. And then coincidentally, someone else I trust and admire said, hey, Paul, you know what? You surely should write a book. And I was off to London Business School on a training program, which was actually transformational leadership, very appropriate considering where I was in India leading this, uh, this rocky ship. And my coach that they assigned to me said, hey, Paul, you should write a book. So I went from saying I'm not an author to, yeah, maybe I should write a book to the third time I'm going to write a book. And so I wrote a book. How long did it take? 
it took me nine months. And that's the joke now. People say, you know, having a baby. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I can't claim to say it's uh, uh, more difficult or anywhere near, but it was quite a process. The book is like a baby. but And I wrote it actually because I was, you know, so engaged and involved in this intense experience to turn around our operation in, in India. I set aside two hours every Saturday morning. This is also a lesson I learned back in the Karate Dojo. It's about discipline. It's about healthy cadence. If you really want to do something, achieve something, let's say even achieve mastery in anything, you really need to spend the time and block the time and be selfish. And so I did that every Saturday morning from 8 until 10 in the morning. I went out on my balcony in Bangor. And uh, I have fond memories of sitting there with my laptop and a cup of coffee and some dark chocolate because apparently that's good for your creativity, right? Mm, nice. And I was listening to the horns in the background in Bangor. I, I used to call it the Bangor Symphony Orchestra. That's what I was going to say. That's not going to be a peaceful place to write a book on your balcony in India. But I loved it. When you, well, you know, mm. you've been to India. When you live in India for yeah. a while, you come to like it. I, I quite liked it. So I started on this book, but writing a book is not an easy venture. You don't just sit down and write a book. So I I went through a lot of iterations, approaches, and in the end, I did what we're doing now. I, I recorded myself talking about leadership, telling stories from the karate dojo to the Japanese women's soccer team to my experience as an army cadet in Canada. And I recorded voice memos, and then I went back and listened to them and started to write the book. And it took me nine months. A random little thing that might amuse you. I actually started listening to the audiobook this weekend. I, I have this thing, I love listening to audiobooks narrated by the author. I really want to hear it in, in the person's voice. And right before listening to yours, I was listening to Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey. Oh, wow. And I thought, yeah. I thought I'd clicked on the wrong one. I thought I was back on Matthew again, but it was you. All right, few, all right, all right. <laughs> yeah. After a few more seconds, oh, I realized the, the Southern drawl wasn't quite there. Yeah, I, sure I got, a, I got the, northern, the Northern version, eh? <laughs> so, well, that's interesting because so here's a side story, back to the reflex. So I wrote the book, released it around the world. It was well-received, which was quite encouraging. You know, it's one thing to write the book. It's another thing for actually, you know, for people to read it. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to listen to the audiobook. But how the audiobook came to life, the middle of COVID, the worst time of COVID, if you recall, in India with the Delta variant that hit India so hard. And we were in total lockdown. But someone said to me, again, someone admired, said, you know, you really should prepare an audiobook because apparently audiobooks are growing in popularity. And according to Amazon, almost 30% of books sold are now audiobooks. And I had never listened to an audiobook before, but I understood the genre was, was growing. So the first thing I did, Reflex, I went on to Google, said, and I looked for a narrator to narrate my book, Default Reflex. And then another person said to me, no, 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 Paul, this is your book. It's written in your voice. It's a conversation with the reader. You have to record it. And my first reaction was, I'm not a narrator. <laughs> Someone else encouraged me, and then I had a laugh, and I saw oh, I did it again. So, long story short, we hunted down a studio, even in the midst of lockdown in Bangor, that would allow us to do this. They had never done an audiobook before. It was a music studio, and it so happened it was literally a two-minute walk from my apartment in Bangor. So, I managed to sneak through the barricades and go to the studio and record the audiobook. It took about 15 visits, but it was an amazing experience in uh, recording it myself, so... Yeah. I'm so glad you did it. it, it honestly, it really comes across the passion for your subject in the audiobook. Well, thank you. So, I mean, this is slightly taking us away from our three things, but just as you mentioned, India, it was a rocky ship, 
and uh, you just mentioned Delta. Could you tell us a little bit about that time? Yeah, it was, um, I would say in my career and even I'd say personally and professionally, probably one of the, one of the toughest times in my life for a whole bunch of reasons. But first of all, as the captain of a ship, as a CEO, one of the things that we need to do is make sure the ship is on course. But the other thing that I realized and, and through this tragedy that the role of a leader is to make the team feel safe. And it's tough to do that when you're literally locked down at home separated from the team. We had, you know, colleagues across all of India, 75 offices, several thousand people uh, with their families and not being able to really, you know, go out and support and, and help when people needed help. So that was tough. And, and I, I, it was reminded me of the importance of not only leading the ship forward and, and achieving results and goals, but even more importantly, keeping the ship steady and keeping your people on the ship safe. And that's where I kind of... Uh, I had a realization about this thing uh, called IQ and EQ. We've heard a lot about those two. Intelligence quotient as a key kind of characteristic, the effective leader combined with EQ, emotional quotient, the ability to connect. But I discovered a third one, which I think is equally, if not more important, and especially true during challenging times or tough times like we had in India. And that's the compassion quotient. Mm. I call it compassion quotient because it's a step above empathy. When I had calls with colleagues who were struggling with COVID, we had, you know, sadly, tragically, we had colleagues passing away from COVID, their family members passing away. And I felt so helpless. And I thought having the call and expressing my, you know, condolences just wasn't enough. We had to do something about it. And so that's where I really kind of learned the power of, of compassion. And we rallied together virtually with our leadership team and brainstormed on how we could help. And the key issue in India was the lack of oxygen. The hospitals ran out of oxygen across the country. So we thought, how can we help? What can we do rather than just feel? What can we do? How can we roll up our sleeves and help people who are in need? And so we thought, well, we're a Dutch company. There's another famous Dutch company that makes something called oxygen concentrators for the homes, for people who need oxygen at home. Mm. They're portable machines. The company's Philips. So we got on a call quickly with the global CEO of Philips. One thing led to another, uh, and we managed to source 150 of these machines all over the world, bring them over, fly them over. Uh, and then, of course, the issue in India is to bring things into the country. You have customs and you have all of them there. So we met down and met the commissioner of customs and explained the story, appealed to his heart, and he expedited this equipment in. Our team then came out and ensured that it was delivered directly to homes across the country of people who were literally suffocating. And we saved lives. And that was a real important lesson for me. What is leadership? This is nowhere in the playbook. I mean, none of us have come up learning how to rescue people who, uh, whose lives are in danger. When we're talking about business leadership. Mm, it, mm -hmm. It's never been about that. But it really, uh, for me, is a very um, important lesson that I'll take with me forever. That first, make sure the ship is steady and that people feel safe physically. And now in our current world, let's say post-corona, hopefully, uh, but they're also feeling safe mentally. Gosh, I mean, what an awful time! But I'm I'm so glad that that you were able to get some oxygen machines into the country. Gosh, okay, so you, you just got ahead of me a little bit there, um, mentioning IQ and EQ, because your third thing that we're going to discuss is the importance of IQ and EQ in a career path. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is interesting. If you look at the evolution of how we would measure performance, but also the indicator of potential high performance. Way back in the 60s, it was IQ. We gave colleagues, employees IQ tests. 
and we would rank them based on their intelligence. I'm glad I didn't come up in that generation because I don't, <laughs> I don't know how I would have done, frankly. So, and this is academic, pure academic intelligence. So a high IQ score was therefore an indicator of a high potential or high, potentially high performer, right? Therefore, people with high IQs during that generation typically became leaders of people. Then over time, we discovered, especially in the 70s through the whole uh, bit connected to the uh, disco generation and mood rings and all that bio, you know, um, bio rhythm, all that stuff that, you know, I'd actually got to be able to feel, you got to be able to connect with people. And that's where the EQ was born. The idea of the emotional quotient, being able to connect with people, not just the mind, but also the heart. And so that's a tough one to measure, by the way. When you're, let's say, evaluating, assessing people or trying to look at performance, I mean, how you really measure that one. But that that became kind of the norm. And so it was about IQ and EQ. You know, as I said earlier, I think that that's not enough. There are people who are very intelligent, who connect well with people. But I feel like a lot of leaders are missing out on that critical third one, which is empathy squared. And that is compassion. Really the ability not only to feel, but to do something about it. And that, you know, that could be someone on your team who's struggling. We've all been there. We've seen someone on our team who's struggling. And then after that meeting where you talk to that person, you encourage that person, then, you know, when the meeting ends, is that the end or is that just the beginning for you as a leader where you're starting to come up with action? And this is action that no one asked you to do. You come up with yourself and you, you leverage your resources. You know, so in my case, I spent a lot of time talking with our talent management team to say, how can we encourage and support you know, colleagues who are struggling that need development um, and so on. So, you know, I think that compassion quotient is so important and we haven't really, it hasn't come into the normal, let's say, vocabulary when we look at leadership, but I think we're going to hear it more and more moving forward. Maybe that's your next book. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I could write a lot about it. There's a lot of uh, amazing stories, not just about what we did, but during COVID, uh, we saw so many stories of uh, amazing leadership rooted in compassion. And, and let's face it, that also gave birth to the word purpose. Before COVID, we didn't talk a lot about purpose. And now it's on everyone's mind. You know, Jim Rohn, the author, has a great quote. He says, when the why is clear, the how is easy. You start your day every day, whatever you do with the why. And the rest of the day typically comes easy as long as you start with the why. You know, that's your North Star, your true North. And it's the same for every leader in every organization. You just mentioned that you're glad you weren't around when they were judging people in the corporate world based on their IQ. Did you previously think that you weren't headed for success in the corporate world because of your IQ or because of messages you'd received around this? Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of us grew up in that world where the assumption was that the smarter people had a higher chance of success. And, you know, I didn't go to the best university in Canada. Oh, it's a good university, but it was uh, the university in my town. So it was the, you know, the default university. I had just a, a Bachelor of Arts. So it was a standard BA degree and not a master's, certainly not a PhD and so on. So I wouldn't have classified myself in, say, the top percentile of IQ. So, yeah, I think that probably was a bit of a, a self-limiting belief coming up in a generation where it was believed commonly that, People who are intelligent had a higher chance of of, uh, rising up, whether it's the corporate ladder or just anywhere in general and generally in in the world and in society. So that was there. But, you know, I was really encouraged the first time I I went to London Business School. And then I've since been very fortunate to do courses at INSEAD, both in France and Singapore. And I discovered that at one point along your journey, it's less about the IQ and it's absolutely more about 
the human element in the EQ. So that's uh, reassuring. I think it's given me a, maybe a higher level of confidence as well. The more I spend time with people who are on a mission to improve and grow, and it's, it's less about knowledge and intelligence, and it's more about how can you create a movement? How can you rally people together towards a cause, towards a purpose, and execute for measurable results? I, I really relate to this one. I, I always really bought into the belief that the IQ is is more important to success than than anything else. And even even now, now I'm in my mid thirties, I still feel this sort of academic inferiority. Well, I'm I'm, I'm British, right? It's specific to anyone. If I found out they went to Oxford or Cambridge, <laughs> I immediately feel myself shrink. Oh, I'm too stupid to have a conversation with this <laughs> with this person. And you know, actually, that's particularly silly because one of my ex boyfriends went to Cambridge, and I certainly didn't feel inferior to him then. So I should have got past that, but I haven't. Well, that's all part of the journey, isn't it, though, Pippa? Right? And self awareness—that's <laughs> part of self awareness, by the way. No, I, yeah. Again, I go back to what I said earlier. I think uh, if you talk about, I get asked this question a lot: What are the critical characteristics of the effective leader? I don't put intelligence anywhere in there. I would not put it on my top five list. That's for sure. Good to have. You have to have a certain level of intelligence. But do people really follow someone with passion and belief because the person is intelligent? What is your top five? Oh, absolutely. What I said earlier: the leader as enabler. Leader who wakes up every morning ready, committed to take action to enable everyone around him or her to shine, to be the best version of themselves. That's one. Leader as enabler. I would even want to stop there, honestly. I mean, if you wake up every day ready to enable those around you to shine, you're going to be an exceptional leader because just imagine everyone around you is being the best version of themselves and they're shining and they feel supported and they feel safe. Then, you know, you'll achieve whatever goals uh, you're, you're aiming for. Okay. Paul, thank you so, so much for your time today. I've asked you a thousand questions, I think. To wrap up, I'm asking everyone the same question. If they can suggest someone we reach out to to try and get on this podcast, either someone who has no self-limiting beliefs, you think, and we'll find out, or someone who you think has a really interesting perspective. I've got two people, Pippa, and I would really like to see these two fellows. They're both mentors of mine. One is Marshall Goldsmith who was an apprentice of Peter Drucker. Uh, you may know him, Pippa. He's quite a, of course, a well-known leadership guru uh, and a coach. And he's on the Forbes Hall of Fame uh, as, as an amazing uh, leadership coach. He's also my coach and my good friend. So Marshall is, is one person that would be amazing uh, on your podcast. And the other one is someone I mentioned earlier in our chat is a fellow named Ken Honda, who's also an incredible guy, my good friend and incredible author, very famous in Japan, just such a good-hearted man. He's focusing his message, his purpose now on the word in Japanese, arigato. Arigato means thank you, the power of thank you. A lot of people talk about gratitude, but he's taking it one step forward. He's saying thank you, whatever it is in your language, the power of expressing thanks verbally and not only uh, you know saying it, but feeling it. And he even has an interesting concept that money has emotion. Now we should say thank you to money when it enters our pocket and when it leaves our pocket. Really interesting guy. Yeah. So Ken Honda here in Japan uh, and Marshall, who's off in Tennessee and always traveling the world. But uh, I would love to have those two guys on your show. I would absolutely love to speak to both of them. I'm going to be hitting you up for a, for a connection straight after this. We'll reach out. Okay, Paul, thank you so much. It's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.